Father, we give you thanks for this morning that we can gather together to hear from your word. And as we look to your word this morning, we ask that your spirit might illumine the scriptures to us so that we might understand them, that we might be impressed yet again with our great and glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. What motivates you? What motivates you to do things? What compels you to get things done that need to be done? If there's a task that you need to do or something that needs done and you know you ought to do it, what motivates you to do it? Perhaps it's a deadline. Maybe you're a procrastinator um, and you have a deadline coming and you know you've got to get it done by then and you wait, but there's motivation as that deadline approaches. Or maybe it's Fear of not finishing, fear of not getting it done, fear of the consequence of not getting it done. Maybe yet it's motivation comes for you from just the encouragement of others. You can do it. Get after it. Well, spiritually speaking, let me ask, what motivates you to godliness? What motivates you to pursue holy living in your life? What compels you to conduct yourself as a Christian. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a passage in Titus chapter two, verses 11 through 14 that get to this very question. What motivates you? What's the compelling reason that a Christian would pursue godliness or would pursue holy living or would conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? We might even frame the question another way. Maybe instead of what motivates you or what compels you, we might ask, why? Why would a Christian obey God's commands? Why would a Christian pursue godliness in their life? And some people have asked that question because they're trying to figure out how is it that God's grace to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and godliness and the pursuit of holiness in your life. How do those two things go together? As we've been hearing and we know to be true from Acts 15, the past couple Sundays, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone on account of the finished work of Christ alone. We're not saved by our works. There's no amount of effort or doing that could earn our salvation. In fact, there's no amount of doing or effort or obedience that would maintain our salvation. Our salvation is secure because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So then we say, well, why godliness? Why holiness? Why a pursuit of holy living? And we'll see in the text this morning that God's grace and a pursuit of holiness and godliness are not at odds with each other. They're not. They're not mutually exclusive. In fact, we're going to see that God's grace to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the motivation. It's the basis or it's the fuel, if you will, to a life of godliness, holy living. It's not that we pursue godliness and holy living for our salvation. It's that we pursue godliness and holy living because of our salvation. So as we look through the text of Titus chapter two, verses 11 through 14 this morning, we're going to see four effects of grace in the believer's life, four effects of God's grace in the life of the believer. 
Now, a little bit of context for you on the book of Titus and what's happening and where we're at in the book since we're jumping in right in the middle. In the book of Titus, it's the Apostle Paul who's writing to Titus. Titus had accompanied Paul on some of his journeys to establish churches to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were on the island of Crete. Not Crete, Nebraska, but the island of Crete. And Paul leaves the island and he leaves Titus behind. He leaves Titus behind to finish the work that they had started. And he writes this letter to Titus to give him instructions. Here's what you need to do to complete the work that we have already begun there in Crete. He says, you need to appoint elders and leaders in the church. You need to address the false teachers that are there and among you on the island and in the church, influencing others, upsetting whole families, it says. You need to rebuke them. You need to deal with them. And then he says, you need to teach them sound doctrine. And when he's talking about sound doctrine, he's talking about godly doctrine, healthy doctrine, doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to teach them these true and right doctrines because what they're getting from these false teachers is not sound doctrine. And then he also says, Titus, you need to encourage these Christians. You need to motivate them in their conduct and how they're living in their godliness in their pursuit of a holy life. And it's, it's very evident as you look through the book of Titus that Paul is definitely concerned with the behavior and the conduct of the Christians in Crete. It's really not any wonder that he's concerned with these things considering where they're at. If you look at chapter 1, verse 12, one of their own, one of the Cretans themselves, describes what they're like. He says there, in verse 12 of chapter 1, they're always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. These are the people of Crete. In fact, to be from Crete was to be synonymous with being a liar. They had sayings that said, oh, he's just a Cretan, meaning, oh, he's just a liar. These are the people that were on the island that were among them, around them, influencing them. The people that had been saved now struggling with these same issues. And so Paul really wants them to be encouraged in the gospel, to understand that they need to be those who conduct themselves in holy living and godliness. Their lives are to be reflecting the reality of who they are in Christ. So when we come to chapter 2, at the beginning of the chapter, what Paul gives to Titus are, these are the things I want you to teach to the people. You need to exhort them with these commands. And he gives several through verses 1 through 10. Just a sampling in verse 2 of chapter 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So giving them how they ought to conduct themselves as Christians. And then we come to our passage in verse 11, where Paul helps by giving them the motivation, what will fuel them to do those things, to conduct themselves in that way, to obey these commands, these exhortations. Now, usually what we see is in Paul's letters, these things are flipped. Usually it's he gives the motivation. He highlights the glories of Christ and what he's done for us on the cross and then says, now in light of this, do these things. In the book of Titus, though, it's different. It's do these things, conduct yourself in this manner. Oh, and here's why, because of Christ and what he has done for you. 
It's all the same, but it's flipped differently. So maybe you perhaps think of the book of Romans when the first 11 chapters are filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and how we've been justified by his grace. And then we get to chapter 12 and he says, now in light of these things, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable response. This makes sense that you would now obey in light of what God has done for you in Christ. So here we have, as he has given them the instruction, he's given them, here's what you ought to do. Here's how you ought to live. This is God's command to you, his exhortations of how you ought to conduct yourself as Christians. Now he gives these motivations, why you would do these things, what compels you to live in this way. And we'll see these again in four effects of God's grace in the life of the believer. Look with me at verse 11, and we'll see the first effect of God's grace in the life of the believer, and that is grace brings salvation. So first, grace brings salvation. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Here we see at the beginning of this verse even the connection with the previous 10 verses. He says, for or because. So do these things, conduct yourself in this way because. And here's the because, here's the reason, here's the motivation. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. This is because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done. He says, the grace of God has appeared. Grace. We hear this word so many times, sometimes we forget what grace is. Grace is kindness or favor. More specifically here, it's God's unmerited, or sometimes people say God's demerited favor. His favor that we are undeserving of, that he shows to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This grace of Christ coming to accomplish redemption for us by his life, his death, and his resurrection. It brings salvation. We can see that it's this grace that brings us justification later in chapter 3, verse 7. He says, so that being justified by his grace. This grace of God has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's grace to us because it's freely given. It's something we don't deserve. What we are deserving of is God's just condemnation because of our sin, because of our law-breaking, because God requires of us that we would perfectly obey his commands always, all the time, every one of them, and yet we fail to keep them. And so we're due his just condemnation. But God's grace to us is that he would send his son Christ, who would be born under the law, who would perfectly obey his commands for us. And that would lead him to the cross where he would pay the punishment due to us for our law-breaking. This is God's grace to us. And he said, his grace has appeared. It's, it's burst on the scene, if you will. It's the word for an epiphany. Something that was previously concealed is now being known among you. And Christ in his incarnation comes to accomplish redemption for us, for those who would believe in him. It's grace. It's by this grace that we are saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Indeed, this is God's amazing grace that he lavishes on us through his son. 
As we see this grace, we're left astonished and amazed, silenced by his wondrous grace that he's given to us. It says that it's appeared and it's for all people, he says. Now, he's not here saying, Titus, you need to let them know that God saves all people. This is universalism here. No, it's for all kinds of people. If you consider what he said, even in the previous verses, 1 through 10 of chapter 2, he talks about older men, he says. Then in verse 3, older women. And then later, younger men, younger women, bondservants, all kinds of people, even Cretans are those who Christ has come to save, those who would trust in him alone for salvation. His grace has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This grace is something that's not new when it came to appear. This grace is tied to the very character of who God is. It's his essence, his being. We think of God's purposes that he set forth that are tied to this grace. Second Timothy verse. 9 and 10 of chapter 1, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, this purpose that God set forth. It comes on the scene when Christ comes. We think of this grace tied to who God is. Exodus 34, when he's proclaiming his name, the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious. He's the God of all grace. This grace doesn't begin when Christ comes, but it's now appearing. It's being manifested as Christ came who is full of grace and truth. So we have this unmerited favor, this blessing of God, this free gift that comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and it brings salvation. We could literally read this to say, for God's saving grace has appeared for all people, for every tribe, tongue, and nation. So, Titus, instruct them to do these things, to live in a manner that accords with sound doctrine, to obey these commands, to live a life of holiness and godliness. Why? Because of God's grace that has brought salvation for those who will believe. Why? Because of the gospel. That's the motivation for a life of godliness and obedience. The gospel, it's who God is and what he has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. That motivates us. It compels us to live in light of our salvation. We don't do these things to earn. We don't do these things to maintain, but we do them because of what has already been done, what is accomplished in Christ. So the first effect of God's grace in the life of the believer is that grace brings salvation. And because grace brings salvation, we can obey. We can do the right thing. We can live a life of godliness. The second effect of God's grace in the life of the believer is that grace trains and instructs. Grace trains and instructs. Look at verse 12 of Titus chapter 2. I'll start in verse 11 so we can pick up where we were. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
So the second effect is that God's grace trains and instructs us. It's still tied here when we get to verse 12. We're still tied to the grace that has appeared in verse 11. He's saying we're still talking about God's saving grace. It has appeared, it has come, it has brought salvation, and God's grace, now it says in verse 12, trains us. It instructs us, or maybe disciplines, educates, teaches us. The idea here is of a student who is being instructed and giving, given guidance and oversight by God's grace. It's a corrective instruction. And all of it, one writer says, has been designed to form proper habits. This instruction, this training that we receive from God's grace. Grace is personified here as the instructor and teacher in our life, in the life of the Christian. It trains us, those who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation, those whose salvation has come to. One writer says, grace bases all of her teaching upon the great facts in which her first grand revelation of herself was made and finds all her teaching power in those mighty memories. Grace, it instructs us based upon the facts. What are these facts? These facts of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came and died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. These are the facts of what happened. Christ who came to accomplish redemption. And so because of this, God's grace now trains us and instructs us. You see, we continue to depend upon God's grace for the entirety of our Christian life. It's not something that we start with. We have God's saving grace, and now we move on to something else. No, this is grace, God's grace that we depend upon for the entirety of our life. It's God's grace that not only saves us, but sanctifies us, renews us in the inner man, transforms us into the image of Christ, our Savior. It's all of God. It's by grace that this is happening. It's by grace. We are now a new creation. And this transformation begins and continues as we are trained, as we are instructed by God's grace. And we see a couple of things that this grace trains us and instructs us to do. It says, training us in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So here, now, in this present age... Amongst the world that we live in, we are trained and instructed to do these things, to one, renounce ungodliness, and two, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. You think of renouncing here, it's that grace instructs Christians to essentially say, say no to ungodliness, to be those who see sin, call it what it is, and say no to ungodliness. To say no to sin and unrighteousness. To be those who are giving up and denying the sin and its control in your life by the power of the Spirit. And this continues on in the Christian life. This ungodliness is godlessness. The worldly passions it speaks of here in verse 12 are the desires or behaviors and the conduct of the world around us. It's said in this present age, consider even the Cretans here, who he's writing this to, who they're living amongst, right? The evil beasts 
lazy gluttons, liars, right? The people we live among. And such were some of you, right? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. He's saying you still live in and among them. And now the grace of God trains us and instructs us and enables us and empowers us and gives us the ability to say no to sin and unrighteousness, to renounce it, to reject it. We now, because of God's grace and its sanctifying work in our life, we desire to be free from that sin and the corruption of this world around us. So grace, yes, it saves, but grace, it sanctifies us by the power of the Spirit in us and trains us to say no. But really the the movement of the verse here is not only to focus on that negative side, the saying no, but really to point to the positive side. Almost like saying, training us that by denying ungodliness, we might live to these things. We might do these things instead. And he gives three ways or three things that characterize how we might then live as we're saying no to godlessness and ungodliness and unholy living and the corruption of the world around us. How are we then to live? And he gives us three ways. And these three ways kind of relate in regard to yourself and your relationship to others and your relationship to God. He says back in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Self-controlled is to be thoughtful, sober-minded, to think with a clear and sound mind. This goes with the sound doctrine that they're to be instructed in, the gospel, the good news of Christ, sound, godly doctrine, healthy doctrine, to be sober-minded, to be thinking on these things. This is listed even in the verses previous. And then as we relate to others, he says that we are to be upright, to have right dealings and relationships with others, to be kind and gracious toward others. That should be what characterizes our conduct. We say no to ungodliness and yes to generosity, to loving one another, to brotherly affection. I love in Romans 12 where it says to outdo one another in showing honor to each other. To be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. This should be what characterizes your conduct. How? Because of the grace of God in your life and what it has done for you by saving you, yes, and sanctifying you and training you to say no to sin and to do these things. This is your motivation. It's God's grace. It's the power of the gospel and the work of his spirit in your life. Also, he says, as it relates to God, to live godly lives, to have a right relationship with God. And as I consider these things, it's very reminiscent, isn't it, of how Jesus sums up the law, right? To love your neighbor as yourself, to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we know that we fail to do these things. What's God require of us? To perfectly love God and love neighbor. And we have failed to do that because we are lawbreakers, And so we say, but now I'm being told I must do those things. Well, yes, we ought to do those things, but we can do those things because Christ has perfectly loved God. He has perfectly loved neighbor for you if you are trusting in him. And he's paid the just condemnation that is due to you on the cross. And so now, because of God's grace that has appeared, 
We are free from sin and we can live to righteousness by the power of the spirit in us. And we can gladly now say, oh, because of what Christ has done for us, I can seek to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I can seek to love my neighbor out of thanksgiving to say thank you for what he has done in Christ for us. The effect of grace in the life in the believer. And this is what happens here now in this present age. As we get to the next section where we're awaiting the return of Christ. But here and now, as we're living amongst this world, we can do these things because of the enabling power of the Spirit in our lives. And then we come to a third effect of grace in the believer's life. First one was that it brings salvation. Then secondly, that it trains and instructs us. And then thirdly, God's grace gives us hope. God's grace gives us hope. We think about what we're living here now in this present age in verse 12. And then we get to verse 13 and we see the hope that is ours because of God's grace. Look at Titus 2.13. It says, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's interesting how when Paul is writing these instructions and he's writing this motivation, now he first refers to the glorious appearing of God's grace through Christ, bringing salvation in verse 11. And then we get to verse 13 and we have another appearing happening. And this is the return of Christ. This is referring to the second coming. It's referring to the appearing of Christ that Paul refers to in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. We see elsewhere in Scripture. And as Christians, Paul is saying, we are to be waiting for that. We are to be expectantly waiting, looking forward to this, to the return of Christ. Why? Because it's our blessed hope. It's the return of our sure hope in Christ. It's not just hope and hope. Well, I really hope things turn out or I really hope in the end things work out for our benefits. No, it's a sure hope that we can have confidence in because it's the hope of Christ and what he has accomplished for us. Look at the beginning of the letter of Titus in chapter one, verse two. Paul helps us see that this is a sure hope. He writes in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. This hope is sure because God has promised it before the ages began. And it is sure because Christ has accomplished our redemption. And so we can bank on it, that this hope is sure in Christ. And we look forward to that. We're eager. We expect his return and we look forward to it with confidence. I always think of Romans 8 when thinking about our hope in Christ, their future glory Romans 8 verse 23 through 25 and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly see that eager expectation as we await eagerly the adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we are saved now hope that is seen is not hope For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This hope 
We cannot yet see it with our eyes, but it is sure, and we wait for it expectantly, eagerly. And I've heard people say, you know, they're a little bit scared or concerned of when Christ comes. I'm not ready yet. Not yet. No, for the Christian, he's saying we eagerly wait. We long for his return because we know that it is by grace through Christ that we can be confident of our sure salvation and what will come in eternity forever with him. Thinking of what will come and the sure hope, we think of First John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, so already we are God's children. Even thinking about as we live in this present age, it's kind of that already not yet thing where already we are God's children, he says, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So there's already something that is ours. This salvation is ours, but it's not yet been fully revealed to us because Christ is yet to come. And then he continues to say, but we know that when he appears, Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's a sure hope that we will be like him when we see him. Or how about Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for his return expectantly. And it says, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We think of Romans 8, verse 29. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Grace gives us hope because we have a sure confidence It is done. It is finished because of what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection for us. So we look forward to his return. We eagerly await that. So while we are eagerly awaiting, what do we do? We can be busy doing the work of Christ. We can be busy obeying him out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving, looking forward to his return. And this return is going to be one of great glory, it says. In verse 13, it says that we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One writer said he appeared in grace, verse 11, but he will reappear in glory. Jesus promised that this is what would happen in Matthew 24. He says, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We look forward to this glorious appearing of our Savior. Notice too, can't help but notice and point out that this is a claim and a very specific and clear claim to the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ when he says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the eternal Son of God, very God of very God who came to accomplish redemption for us when the grace of God appeared bringing salvation. What a matchless Savior we have in Christ, who alone is mighty to save, full of grace and truth, who bought us with his blood on the cross. And by faith and trust in him, we're forgiven, we're justified. And his grace then trains and instructs us as we look forward to his return. Almost here you could maybe even sum up some of these things that grace does and the effects it has by saying grace brings salvation, grace sanctifies, 
and grace glorifies as we look forward to that already not yet of what is yet to come. Well, finally, the last of the four effects of God's grace in the life of the believer, grace brings salvation, it trains and instructs, it gives hope, and then finally, grace makes us zealous for good works. Grace makes us zealous for good works. Look at verse 14 in Titus chapter 2. After he mentions Christ, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he says in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So having mentioned Christ, our great God and Savior in verse 13, now here Paul provides a little bit more insight a little bit more information and clarity into this saving work of Christ that was mentioned generally in verse 11. It says that Christ who gave himself for us, highlighting what Christ has done for us. Thinking of Matthew 28 or 20 verse 28, where Jesus says, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or how about John 10? I lay my life down for the sheep. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down. This is what Christ has done for us, who's given himself for us. He's the self-giving, sacrificial savior, Jesus Christ. He died for us in our place, our substitute. Taking our place in a life of obedience, an atoning death resurrection and then it says who gave himself for us and says to redeem us from all lawlessness and think of lawlessness what is lawlessness we're talking about sin right first john says that sin is lawlessness to redeem us from all of our sin all of our law breaking our inability to merit our salvation, to do what God requires of us. And so we are bound by sin, unable to save ourselves. And yet Christ has given himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to redeem us, to save us from our sin and the bondage of our sin. Think of Romans chapter 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We've been set free from our sin because of Christ and what he has done for us by giving himself on the cross. We've been bought and we belong to Christ. And so if we belong to him, let's then Paul is saying, conduct ourselves in light of that. Not only did he give himself to redeem us, but he gave himself, it continues in verse 14 of Titus 2, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, to purify, to be cleansed from, to be washed from what defiles or stains you. This is sin that defiles and stains us, to be washed and cleansed that you might be presented acceptable to be brought back into a right 
relationship with God. And as we are purified, we're to be a people for his own possession. A lot of imagery and words here uh, reminiscent of the Old Testament. You think of sacrifice, Christ giving himself as sacrifice for sin once for all. You think of all the sacrifices in the Old Testament. You think of Christ, our Passover lamb, sacrifice for us. You think of him redeeming us, delivering us from our sin, our bondage to sin. You think of people of God delivered from Egypt and the slavery they were held in bondage. Purify, cleansing. You think of washing a people for his own possession. Israel was God's treasured possession. He said, we see here that Christ is the fulfillment of all these things. All these things have been working toward him. And grace now has appeared. It's now here. He's come. He's bring this salvation. He's done it so that you might be a people of his own possession. That you would belong to him. As people who belong to him. Conduct yourself in light of that. Do the right thing. Live as Christians who belong to Christ. And he says, finishing out verse 14, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He says that as God's chosen people, as God's people who belong to him, who have been redeemed, who have been purified because of what Christ has done, you ought to be zealous for good works. You should be enthusiastic, eager to do good works because not you were doing it because you were trying to save yourself, earn God's favor, keep him happy or do the right thing so he might accept you on the final day. No, because you belong to him. Your salvation is sure in Christ. So now out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving, you want to do the right thing. You want to do good works that would honor and please him in the way that you conduct yourself in this present age amongst this world filled with corruption and sin. You think about these people in the church in Crete and he's saying they need to conduct themselves in the right way because you have these Cretans that are known to be liars. They need to look different than them because they are different because they belong to Christ. So we'd be zealous to do these things. Is that true of us? That we're zealous, enthusiastic, longing to do good works that would honor and glorify him not to earn our salvation because we're thankful. And because God has prepared these works for us. Think of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 I read earlier. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are a new creation in Christ because he has made us alive. Why? So that we might do good works. God has prepared them for us so that we would walk in them. It's our proper, our right response. I love Romans 12 where Paul is saying this is our reasonable act of worship. This is what makes sense for us to do, to do these things. No longer are the commands of God a burden to us. They're a burden as we're under the law for salvation from the moment we're born. But as we're in Christ, they're not a burden to us anymore because we're not under the law for salvation. We're in Christ. And so now God's law is a delight for us to do. 
We love to obey, to do good works, to honor God who has saved us by his grace through Christ. You see, it's all of God's grace. All of it. It brings salvation. It trains us, instructs us, sanctifying us, giving the power and strength to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. It gives us a sure hope in Christ because of what he has done for us. And it makes us grateful people. Are you a grateful people? Are we a grateful people? I love what one songwriter says. He says, don't you just want to thank someone for this? Don't you want to thank God for what he has done for us and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? So give him thanks. Honor him with your life of godliness and holiness by the power of the Spirit in you. It's all of Christ and what he has done. The good news yields our good works as we depend upon him and rejoice in what he has done. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks. We're grateful for what you have done for us for your, through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that he has earned salvation for us by his life, death, and resurrection and that he is our advocate seated at your right hand, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And as we trust and rest in him, now we can be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving and seek to live in a way that would honor you by conducting ourselves in holiness, in a pursuit of godliness, by doing the right thing. And Lord, we confess and know that we still struggle with sin in our life and we won't yet be able to do these things perfectly until we are yet glorified. But even now, in this present age, we can say no to sin and yes to righteousness by the power of your spirit as you sanctify us. Lord, help us to rest in your grace, not only for salvation, but to rest in your grace, to be sanctified and for the power to be able to honor you with our life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.